Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Today's Spirit in Action guest is Al Genie, author of a new book, The Importance of Being Funny, Why We Need More Jokes in Our Lives. Al is actually the author of a host of books like The Seven Deadly Sins, a sampler, The Importance of Being Lazy, God Can Quote Me on That, Quotations on the Meaning of Life, and even Seeking the Truth of Things, Confessions of a Catholic Philosopher. Al is not a stand-up comedian, but professor of business ethics at the School of Business Administration at Loyola University, Chicago, co-founder and former associate editor of Business Ethics Quarterly, and for decades he was the resident philosopher at Chicago's WBEZ public radio station. In other words, his credentials are no laughing matter. And we have Al Ginny here today for Spirit in Action, so we can talk about healing the world, including dealing with the environment, quality, and work for peace. So I thought I'd get you in the mood by starting out with a few such topical jokes. For example, how many climate skeptics does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. We only know how to screw the planet. Or about peace. How about this one from a church bulletin? The peacemaking meeting scheduled for today has been canceled due to a conflict. And finally, about equality, here's one. If February is Black History Month and March is Women's History Month, what happens the rest of the year? Discrimination. Not everyone has much of a sense of humor, and that's even more true when dealing with issues people are passionate about. But as our guest will make clear, humor is often exactly the medicine we need. Al Genie now joins us from Chicago, Illinois. Al, I'm really excited about your visit here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to it. I've, of course, especially engaged because humor is something I love. That's maybe not obvious to all of our listeners. I do love laughing, and a lot of people love humor, but a lot of very serious people trying to heal the world, like we're trying to do with Spirit in Action, they don't have a great sense of humor. Do you have a breakdown of the population, those that are humor-aversive? No, you know, I've never seen that statistic. And one thing I've actually learned in studying about jokes and humor, and I want to use humor and joke-telling almost as synonymous terms to cover the area right now, is that there are a couple of issues I can't put a finger on. That is, why many people don't have a sense of humor, none at all. And why, why does that happen? Many people don't laugh at jokes, not at all. And what's the sadness involved there? Uh, three, that there's no formula for making jokes. And four, that different folks like different jokes, and there's no way to figure out, even in a comedy set where you supposedly have a well-known comic and supposedly their fans are in front of that comic, him or her, and he gives his best new routine and they don't laugh at it. And last of all, the murkiness of jokes is sometimes what we think is a joke is really a cutting remark and not a joke and it's a way we pass it off. That is, 
This gentleman who is in going to jail because he jacked up the price of that medication a year right. ago. Okay. He's been put in jail this week because he said on his Twitter page that uh, anyone who pulls out hair from Hillary Clinton at one of her, her readings, he'll give $5,000 for the hair that they pull out. And a judge put him in jail as a social menace. And he said, it's just a joke. And boy, it ain't a joke, because this guy is a little off the wall, et cetera, et cetera. So what is a joke and what's not a joke isn't always the same for a lot of people. But people who respond to jokes and don't respond to jokes or are dark and dreary, well, you made a distinction that I don't agree on. I think there are many, many people on the right who are very, very you know, prudential and puritanical and, and don't laugh. And I think we confuse seriousness with anti-silliness. Mm-hmm. And I think there are just many people on the left who are saying, no, that what we're doing is too important right now and we have to change the market and so on and do it. You know, there's a new book out literally this week, I think, by one of Obama's uh, writers, and his name is David Litt, and he's talking about writing jokes for the president and writing for the president in general and how he used jokes as a way to kind of break down a wall, a way to say, I'm president of the United States, perhaps the most powerful man in the world, but I'm here for you, or let's cut the tension in the room, et cetera, et cetera. I think, sadly, people say, if you're silly, you can't be serious, and if you're serious, you can't be silly. I think that's an unfortunate breakdown. Humor, all of humor, whether you're talking about jokes, sitcoms, uh, you know, character performances, actors, so on and so forth, you know the three rules of real estate, don't you? Uh, location, location, location. And audience, 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 audience. I read audience. the book. Yes. I Thank read Thank you the very book. much. There'll be a quiz after the show. You <laughs> must pass with a B or higher. And then timing, timing, timing. How do you deliver it? And is it the right time to deliver it? Mark Twain said it best. By the way, even if Mark Twain didn't say this, I'm going to say a couple of things to you during this interview. I'm just going to say Mark Twain said it. The reason is I said it, but nobody believes me, so I have to put Mark Twain in front of it, right? <laughs> but, he, but he really did say, never enter a funeral laughing. Never leave it without telling a joke about the departed. That is, there's a little bit of both. And I think seriousness and silliness are equal requirements in a meaningful life. And those who are all one and not the other I think, miss a great deal of life. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, that's why you wrote the book, The Importance of Being Funny, Why We Need More Jokes in Our Lives. That's not entirely accurate. I wrote the book to send my grandchildren to college. But, you know, if your audience needs to believe that, that's fine. (laughs) I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Yes, you can't help but tell a joke. And I, as I read in the book, uh, even when you're starting very serious classes, you start out with a joke. I mean, you're a professor, right? Aren't you supposed to be serious, right? And then- well, I am supposed to be serious, but think about this. Now, I've been teaching required courses to the unwilling, the unable, and the reluctant for about 40-plus years. Actually, this is my 49th year in the classroom. Oh my goodness. And I still love teaching. I still love dealing with students. I still love putting the lectures together and all that. But for years, I taught straight philosophy, and then I kind of moved into leadership and business ethics and business issues. So now I'm in the School of Business at Loyola University in Chicago. But even there, you need to tell jokes to get their attention. I call it entertainment. I don't just tell jokes. I'm not a stand-up in class. But I use jokes as a vehicle to break the ice, as a vehicle to break tension. Come on. You've had an audience in front of you on a Friday afternoon, and if the room is too warm, they've had too much or too little to drink, the topic is a little droll, and you're tired and they're dying out there, okay? You tell a joke to get their attention. 
and think about it. There are three teachers, professors you remember from your background. The dull, boring one who couldn't communicate anything at all, even on a you know sexy topic, and you were mad at that person because they wasted your time and it was awful. Secondly, the brilliant one. You didn't understand him or her, but they were so brilliant that you wanted to, you know, you paid attention to them. Maybe the one you learned from was the human being, the man or woman who told a joke on occasion, an appropriate joke most of the time, but sometimes not an appropriate joke. I don't mean dirty joke. I mean a joke that's not connected to the moment to make a point, but rather to get their attention. But what I try to use humor in class is to get their attention. Can I give you an example? Yes, sure, please. Give us an example. Years ago, I I would teach metaphysics. Imagine that, metaphysics. (laughs) And I was teaching Zeinenzeit, Heidegger's Zeinenzeit, time and being. So how do you explain time and being to a group of sophomores and juniors who are still struggling with Zein and what? You know, they, don't, they, don't even get, they can't even spell Heidegger at this point. They're going to take all semester to figure out how to spell Heidegger. So I started with this joke. You know, early on, I said, well, here's what we're talking about. Um, a woman who is seemingly healthy but goes into the doctor's office uh, for a yearly checkup and the doctor examines her and he keeps examining her and puts her through more tests and puts her through more tests and he says, you know, uh, Miss Jones, I, I, I don't know how to say this. You came in here for your checkup, but, uh, you know, I've just detected this horrible disease. And frankly, it's a radical disease, and there's absolutely no cure for it. In fact, you're so far advanced in this disease, I think you have six months or less to live. She's flabbergasted, to be, you know, to be assured. She says, oh, doctor, doctor, there's nothing you do. She says, no, nothing at all. She says, you're sure. She says, well, there is one thing you could do. She says, tell me, tell me. She says, well, Miss Jones, I want you to, right after you leave the office, I want you to run out and marry a tax accountant. She looks at him and says, a tax accountant? He says, yes, I marry a tax accountant. I said, will that cure me? He says, oh, no, but it'll make the next six months seem like an eternity. Now. <laughs> and that was in the book. I remember. And that was in the book. I said, right in the book. And, you know, that is what time is, isn't it? Time is this elusive quality. Time is something we actually construct and sometimes have no control over. Time is something that changes. Time is something that's rapid. Time is something that's slow. Time is something we can't handle. But time is, and we have to deal with it. So that's how I want to use humor. Now, Obama did it beautifully. I think he disarmed crowds. I think, if you remember, the last time the present president attended the conference, Uh, Obama went out of his way to tell a joke about him or to bring him into a joke. Not nasty, not negative, and it changed the atmosphere of the room. I think humor does that to people. It decharges us. I think it de-escalates the situation. But it's all about timing, timing, timing. It's when you tell a joke is critical, and the joke you tell is also critical. And the first joke I think you tell in the book, I don't know if Gail, the book publicist who connected us, I don't know if she sent you in my direction because the first joke you told involves two Quaker women talking about Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, Mm -hmm. and I'm Quaker. And so it's like location, location, location in your humor, humor, humor. (laughs) No, I swear there's no connectivity here, none whatsoever. Isn't that funny? And I do love that joke. And that was Lincoln's favorite joke about himself. Lincoln needed humor. Lincoln was a dark soul. Lincoln was a philosopher. Lincoln saw life always as a trial. He was, after all, a lawyer in Illinois, probably adjudicated over 5,000 cases, a lot of them by arbitration rather than going to court. And he saw the dark side of human beings. He saw the good side of human beings as well. And Lincoln was, I think, a pensive person, to be assured. And then the Civil War comes along, 
and he loses children. His wife is slowly, understandably, by the way, going mad, losing her self-control over this. By the way, when he was shot, there were four different satirists, copies of magazines, in his pocket because he would read them at night. He would take a break. He said, without humor, I couldn't deal with the difficulties of this office. Ronald Reagan said something almost the same when he said, I don't know how anybody can handle this office. It wasn't an actor and didn't have a repertoire of jokes in his back pocket. Ronald Reagan really was struggling with dealing with South Africa, you know, the apartheid regime and, and Mandela. And he didn't know exactly what to do was, who was this really Mandela? What was the apartheid? Is that bad? How do I break away? And so he's really flummoxed. And Archbishop Tutu came to see him and the 15 minute discussion with the president lasted about an hour. And Tutu left and Reagan's aide went into the office and he looked just exhausted. And he said, how did the interview with Tutu go? He looked up and he said, so, so. What a way to disarm a whole situation, right? Just, you know, <laughs> tell that joke. I think that's so sweet, right? So, so. Um, but Lincoln loved telling jokes. And in fact, one of the wonderful things in the film, Lincoln, from really based on Doris Kearns Goodman book, The Team of Rivals, which was made into the film, the Lincoln film, they show Lincoln telling jokes in the film. And you actually see Stanton running off. Oh, no, I can't stand that joke. And they, and they tell the real Washington joke he told, and I won't repeat that. But Lincoln collected jokes, and here's the joke he liked the most, and it was a very simple joke. And jokes were word games and not as naughty as uh, nowadays, thanks to George Carlin and others. Two Quaker women meet on the street, and the one Quaker woman says, yeah, this, well, who do you think will win the war? And the one woman says, well, I think Mr. Jefferson Davis uh, and the Confederacy will win. What do you think? She says, well, I think Mr. Lincoln and the North will win. He says, well, why do you think Mr. Davis will win? He says, because he's a praying man, and therefore I think that'll help. And the other woman says, well, Mr. Lincoln is a praying man as well. And the woman who backed Mr. Davis said, yes, but if he prays, God will think he's just joking. <laughs> and I think there's something sweet about that, that Lincoln's just making fun of God there, perhaps, but this wonderful, delicate humor. And he told some pretty naughty ones as well. Self-deprecatory humor is particularly good. You mentioned Ronald Reagan, and one of the th ways that he turned around the debate in 1984 when people are worried that he's going senile, oh, yeah. he, I'm too old. So what does he say? He's raised the issue of age, and I have to say, I will not hold his youth and inexperience against him. Yeah, that was a brilliant line. That was absolutely brilliant. And by the way, I just used a Reagan line. Nobody knew it, so I got to use it. Remember when Reagan was... Um, the studios brought some films of him with the chimpanzee, and he was president at the time. And in good humor, he's signing those as kind of prizes at a charity. And as he's signing them, he said, I'm the one wearing the watch. <laughs> so he's only the chimpanzee. So I just came back from Africa and spent some time in Rwanda climbing with the silverback gorillas. And it was a beautiful, breathtaking experience. And my wife, who is a world-class photographer, took all these wonderful pictures. And there's a couple of me. That's how close we were, standing next to the gorilla, inadvertently, because the gorilla just came up to us. So uh, as I said in the footnotes to all the, or we sent the pictures to all our friends, I'm the one wearing the watch. <laughs> Well, humor in political circles, again, you know, you have to consider your audience and whether this is going to work or not, but there are dispositions that are very different. My favorite 
how many does it take to screw in light bulb jokes? Uh, there was a pictorial book, and it had the question one page and a picture with the answer on the next page. And it says, how many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Now, be careful now. Be careful now. Right. And you turn the page, and there's a woman standing, glaring with her arms crossed, saying, I don't think that's funny. And, You're right. And when politicians, this happens all the time. Now, Obama was very good at laughing at himself. Absolutely. But uh, at the National Press Dinner, the the big thing that happens each year, at one point there were a lot of jokes going around this couple years back about Donald Trump. And you could just see his silhouette there. There was not a smile, not a twitch. He, right. So audience, 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 a humor right. at the expense of the president right now seems very dangerous. It didn't seem quite so lethally dangerous in the time of Obama. And remember, I mentioned that Obama went out of his way to tell a nice joke about Trump the year after that. And Obama at his last press club meeting was brilliant. Of course, he had great writers, but he was brilliant. His delivery was brilliant. Listen, let's put aside politics for a minute, okay? I think clearly the case that Donald Trump is a surprise to the majority of the American public. I think his own campaign and, and Joe Biden has said it was a surprise to him as well. But he is a lightning rod for satirical comments. His brand, his persona, his demeanor, his wardrobe, his hair. I mean, he's just a lightning rod for it. So... Forgetting, putting politics aside, whether you agree with him or not on this or that issue, he is the stuff of which comics are drooling. John Stewart said, he announced a year before that he was going to retire from The Daily Show. He said, what am I doing, stupid? You know, I've got comedy fodder for the rest of my career. But he really does engender it. Look at the national comedy scene right now. Four nighttime television shows are almost totally dedicated to jokes about Trump or what he said that day. Saturday Night Live just won an Emmy for Alex Baldwin's, I mean, spot-on characterization of Mr. Trump. Mr. Obama didn't engender that kind of levity because Mr. Obama, A, told jokes himself, and B, it's not a caricature the way Mr. Trump is. Again, I'm not casting aspersions here. We're just talking about different kind of types. And Mr. Obama was just a different persona. He was the first one to make fun of himself. I remember the one comment he made that when he was playing basketball and they were taking shots of him and he was always wearing sweatpants. Somebody said, why do you always wear sweatpants? He said, because I've got bird legs and no butt. <laughs> and no one should know that. I'm president of the United States. You know? I mean, what a lovely comment to make about oneself, right? Again, apologies aside, Trump has just engendered that, and he's in kind of an adversarial relationship with the press. And that changes the groundwork here. And by the way, it's unfortunate for him because satire has gone up a notch. Satire, I think, is different from straight comedy and the old-fashioned show business. The Jackie Gleasons of the world, the Jack Bennys, the Bob Hopes of the world, they were in show business. They told jokes. They were entertainers. They may have told a political joke here and there, but that was not the basis of their comedy. They just told things that were clever, witty, social commentaries. I remember the one joke from Milton Berle. He turns to his wife. He says, darling, do you think the mystery and the romance are going on in relationships? He turns to him and says, uh, let's talk about that during commercial break. <laughs> boom, right? Bada-boom. Or Henny Youngman, my favorite, favorite comic in some real sense. Showbiz, always in a tuxedo, carrying a violin, right? This is not Jerry Seinfeld. This is not Louis C.K. This is not Amy Schumer. This is, you know, Henny Youngman saying, secret to happy marriage, simple. Dinner and dancing twice a week. I go on Tuesday, she goes on Thursday. Bump, 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 right? <laughs> but Amy Schumer gets up there and tells us about her last four sexual encounters. 
and how gratifying or ungratifying or distasteful or interesting or bizarre that they were. And frankly, I think Amy Schumer is brilliant. I think she's a brilliant comedy writer. I think that her first film was wonderful. I know too much about her body, and I don't want to hear about it anymore, only because it's a little tiring, right? And so comedy is different. And by the way, whether I like her or not, she is an example of the modern comedy that is observational comedy. And Jerry Seinfeld, of course. And by the way, Bill Cosby, he got up there and he told stories about Fat Albert. He didn't tell jokes as such, but they were jokes. There was a setup, there was a pause, there was a punchline. And Seinfeld became the king of that, right? And so he had a 10-year show that really talked about nothing. Nothing. How do you write a check? And that was a whole show. How do you send the gift? That was a whole show. And on and on and on and on. But here's my, be- my favorite Seinfeld, because it exemplifies the commonality of the joke. Seinfeld looks at the audience and says, you know, I never knew my voice had a tone until I got married. <laughs> yes. Same thing as Henny Youngman, right? But different delivery in a different kind of relationship. Louis C.K., who was an understudy of Jerry Seinfeld, and then is now surpassing him, I think, in contemporary popularity, he gets up there and talks about his daughters, talks about constipation, talks about things that makes them funny. Jerry Lewis told you jokes. Or Jerry Lewis, even worse, because it wouldn't be acceptable now. Yes, he played the fool, right? But more than the fool, there was something not quite right about the character he played with Dean Martin. He was the jejun young boy, but there was something challenged about his personality, and that was one of the arguments that why he was so involved in the charities he was involved with. He was concerned about those kinds of things and mental abilities. That persona would never be funny here. He couldn't get away with that now, right? In fact, I would argue that the Smothers Brothers, Tommy, I'm not sure that's politically correct right now. I'm not sure. So it's both timing and audience, of course. Yeah, it is timing and audience. I have a little four-part trilogy, if you will. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's professor speak, right? <laughs> it's the tale, the teller, the told, and the timing. When do you deliver a joke? When is it acceptable? A lot of people feel, and you've heard this a hundred times, comedy is tragedy plus time. I want to deny that. I think comedy can be tragedy in time, but there are some things that outstrip time. You don't hear 911 jokes. You just don't, do you? You're not going to hear a lot of uh, hurricane jokes, at least for a very long time. Right? Right, right. I just came back from Rwanda, as I said. I'm never going to tell a Rwanda genocide joke. Although Mel Brooks made a career out of satirizing, in a hysterical way, Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler, he never did it with the concentration camps. Although there have been a couple of films by that famous Italian comic, that was pretty tough stuff, and you had to really swallow hard, and, you know, they didn't show this and they didn't show that. There are some things that are just beyond Christopher Hutchinson saying, um, Nietzsche is wrong, that would just not kill, you know, does it make you stronger? No, it's going to kill me, and I'm getting weaker. That was a real satirical, angry comment, not a joke. He was dying of throat cancer in the hard way. I'm not sure that everything you can make fun of And I think it's really important to understand that. I think a lot of people think that humor is a passport or currency that allows us to say anything. And I don't think that's true. I think we give license to comics, huge license. Think of the things that that are said now by Bill Maher, by Oliver, by, you know, Samantha Bee, the incredible things that Stephen Corbett says every night on National Channel. They're pretty heavy-handed, right? They're really out there. They're very critical. So I think humor, though, is supposed to be a barb to make us think. I started to say a little while before, if I could come all the way back, Robin Williams 
once said that satire is really about everybody figuring out that the Pope farts too. Well, that's funny satire, and that's what Mel Brooks does, right? But really deep satire, the kind of thing that Jonathan Swift does, it means everybody in anything is open to rebuke and ridicule. And so satire can be a vicious tool, and the license, and so you have to be very careful how you use your license, and the person who exceeded that is Kathy Griffin with the holding the dummy head of Mr. Trump. That was a bridge too far. Or other jokes, whether you liked them or not, totally acceptable, right? But holding that head and wishing him dead, bridge too far, and it's ruined your career. And folks, we're speaking with Al Genie. He just released a book, The Importance of Being Funny, Why We Need More Jokes in Our Lives. I have him here today for Spirit in Action because I believe completely in what he says in his title and what he's written in his book. And Al, I want to focus a little bit more. I mean, you're a professor of business ethics, right? Mm -hmm. For many years, for decades on WBEZ there in Chicago, you were the resident philosopher. So this is deep philosophy that we're joking about right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am, you know, heart and soul committed to making the world a better place. And you explain it well in the book. I think our listeners need to understand why is humor making the world better? Why do we need this? Well, because I think there's so many things in life that are unanswerable. I think there's a certain absurdity to life. I think there's a certain perplexing nature to life. I think so much of life is incomprehensible. And yet so much of life and so much of life is irresolvable and unanswerable. And yet it's unavoidable. And I think humor defangs reality. Let's us step back. Nietzsche once said, and by the way, not a funny guy at all. No sense of humor whatsoever. But to look too long into the abyss is to fall into it and to be lost in it. And I think humor lets us look into the abyss and not be frightened and not lose our sense of self. He said something even better than that. In fact, I'm going to give you the other version by a more contemporary person, another philosopher, Mel Brooks. But Nietzsche once said, we create art in order not to die the truth. I think we create humor not to die the truth. And that's what Mel Brooks said. Jokes are a defense against the universe. And he goes on to suggest that for every ten people God created, he made one of them a comic, otherwise he would all die lamenting the condition of life. I think humor is a bridge, not a total answer, not a substitute for reality, but sometimes a bridge that lets us deal with the moment and then go on, or gives us another point. Just like me joking in class, what I'm trying to do is, in the joke, there's a metaphor here for a more serious thing. Richard Niebuhr, who is not a Quaker, by the way, I once said, (laughs) I think we forget that humor can be another form of wisdom thinking. And I like that. He means by wisdom something that transcends simply logical categories, okay? I like that. I think humor allows us temporarily to diminish the terror in our lives. It allows us to step back and be delighted by life or in wonder of life. And I think that that's really important. And I think meaningful life requires seriousness and silliness, but in the right proportion. And I think that the way to prove it is the contrary. The worst thing you could say of a person, I think, she has no sense of humor. She never tells a joke. She never gets a joke. She's not fun. Well, let's take case in point. My wife, who's of a very strong German from the Amana colonies, 
Because of her, I become aware of the German take on humor, which I know there's plenty of Germans have great sense of humor. But another screw in light bulb jokes. How many Germans does it take to screw in a light bulb? One, because we are efficient and have no humor. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> By the way, I want to go all the way back to your how many feminists do you do it. When I did that joke a couple of times, I said, careful, careful, and then you gave the, you gave the appropriate answer. I put down 15 one to screw in the light bulb and 14 to form a support group to enter and to catalog the experience, right? Yes. And the women in the audience are going, so where's the joke? <laughs> and then they were offended. So doubly, they didn't think it was funny and they were offended. So I said, I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> you got to be careful of those, don't you? I mean, my favorite F mother ethnic joke is, and because I'm Italian and Jewish, I could do this. How many Jewish mothers does it take to screw in a light bulb? The answer is the mother looks up and says, no, don't worry, leave it, it's all right, I'll just sit here in the dark, right? (laughs) Right. Or what's the difference between an Italian mother and a pit bulldog? What is the difference? Well, sooner or later, the the bulldog lets go. Yes. Right? Uh, Right. Right. But you've got to have permission to say those. So when you tell a feminist joke, "Mm -hmm," you better make sure you're wearing your feminist credentials on your shoulder blade. And you better make sure you're German to tell the other joke. You know, because it's permission. I could never do a Jewish accent joke where I'm really simply recapitulating a Jewish comic unless I said, hi, I'm partially Jewish, and I have, you know, Jewish in my background. Or I could never tell the Italian joke, Mario and Maria meet, et cetera, et cetera. I can't do that unless I say, hi, io sono italiano. I'm Italian, and this is my first language, and it's okay. So jokes are contextual. Well, we're going to get into more of that in just a moment. First, I want to remind our listeners that you are tuned in to Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, northernspiritradio.org. With more than 12 years of our programs, free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests. And when you want to track down Al Genie, you just come by our site. And it's not that it's all that difficult. There's not that many letters in his name, but algenie.net is the place you want to go to. He just came out with a book called The Importance of Being Funny, Why We Need More Jokes in Our Life. And we have him here for Spirit in Action to make our lives a better place. Also on our site, you'll find a place to post comments. Please do give us your voice. Considering the program we're having today, maybe you should also post your favorite joke. There's also a place to support Click Donate to support Northern Spirit Radio. I want to say even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, I'll put us in second place, support your local community radio station. Now, Al, for many years, was active with WBEZ down in Chicago, the NPR affiliate down there. He's been on Morning Edition, Talk of the Nation, many other places. He's been all around the place. He was their resident philosopher for so many decades. I have a feeling that there'll be a void in their life when he's no longer available. The world's going to probably collapse in upon itself like a singularity. They fired me three years ago. They're carrying on somehow. They're struggling through. No, no, but <laughs> I but I see the collapse of the universe. I, it's happening. I'm pretty sure that the election of Donald Trump is a direct consequence <gasps> of the fact that I they fired I never thought him. of that. I never yeah. thought of that. I've got the perfect rationale now. Perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> but so please do support your local community radio stations. They're so vital to have local voice, to raise up voices, perspectives, music from the village, from the place where people grow up together. Start out by doing that. And if you got some shekels left over, please support Northern Spirit Radio. Again, Al Genie here, algenie.net. Genie is G-I-N-I. A-L-G-I-N-I dot net. And again, the link's on Northern Spirit Radio. You can find his books everywhere, though, Amazon and every other place in the universe, and hopefully at your local bookstore. That's even better. He's here with us. We're talking about the importance of humor. You were talking, Al, just before we took that little break, you were talking about the importance of audience. I feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes because humor is at someone else's expense. Yeah. You pointed out that Obama made a joke about Trump, which was a gentle, kind, fun joke, yeah. at least in the second case. And there is a way of humor about others, and certainly humor that's self-deprecatory is usually accepted. But the humor that we're hearing from Stephen Colbert nightly, or you're hearing on The Daily Show, it's not particularly gentle, but it's still acceptable and still good, or does it cross that bound? Is there an ethical boundary that we've crossed? Yeah, first of all, we've crossed the Rubicon a long time ago with George Carlin and Lenny Bruce. The language has changed. To me, Lenny Bruce is many things, but he was also a shock jock, and he was pushing the boundaries of language and outrageous things to say, much like Howard Stern. I think Howard Stern's a very smart man, but, you know, he peppers his verbiage with so much foul language that it's kind of shocking, even when he's saying something brilliant. But Carlin took the shock jock and Mort Saul and became a dirty talk satirist, and George Carlin was a brilliant, he was a satirist as much, more than anything else. He satirized culture, he satirized politicians, and he satirized issues, and so on and so forth. And that's this coming together. And then television, cable television, which allows everything now. I mean, I remember Sex in the City, we found out more about Samantha than I ever wanted to know, just kind of like Amy Schumer <laughs> put on Netflix. Television has changed. I remember watching The Sopranos years ago and jumping all the time when they used the F word or something like that or said terrible things. And I, I think, this is television. It's coming out of the television. You can't say that. But, you know, no, that's not true anymore, is it? It's, all bets are off against cable TV. And I think humor is a tool and a weapon. That's what you have to recognize, a tool and a weapon. And the problem is, with political satire, the assumption is politicians are above protection because they are public personas. And I think, good or bad, that's true. And then when you get a politician that engenders that kind of commentary, like a Mr. Um, uh, uh, like uh, like uh, what is his name again? The president's name. Um, <laughs> we do try and forget Donald yeah, Trump. No, no, that's a terrible thing. But you know, George Bush was not loved. But George Bush wasn't assailed comedically the way our president is being assailed right now. Am I correct in that? Oh, I think you're right. Uh, there was a lot of humor pointed at him. And but not the way, not these vicious comments you're getting. I mean, Baldwin just won the Emmy for his vicious, vicious characterization of Mr. Trump. Am I correct? And all of Saturday Night Live, since its beginning, you're too young to remember this. You're just a whippet of a person. <laughs> but Chevy Chase was doing Gerald Ford, you know? And then Aykroyd did Jimmy Carter. Hi, we have inflation. No problem. Print more 20s. You know, he did those routines. And there's been... And a comedic actor 
since then, uh, who was uh, impersonated the president and made him a character in the show. And Baldwin came in with this one, and he's spot on. He's vicious. He's just unrelenting in it, and it's so good it's kind of creepy. Well, he's accurate, too, though. Yeah, he's accurate. To oh, the mannerisms are totally accurate. This is going to be the best speech ever. This is the absolute best. You know, that kind of thing. I love that kind of stuff. But I think that politicians who are big in the press, or really out there, there's no more protection anymore. I think the Jackie rule comes in. Remember, Jackie wanted space. Jackie wanted to be protected from the paparazzi. And she sued them in every country. And finally, the judge says, you know, I could keep them 10 feet away from you. But the cameras could follow you anywhere because of the technology. And Mrs. Kennedy, or no, Mrs. Onassis at this point, you're a public person. And you've given up your privacy by virtue of the role that you now play in the public. And I think, sadly, that's true. Remember, the definition of celebrity is someone who's famous even if there's no reason for them to be famous, right? But there are people who are really, celebrities are really famous because there's a reason to be famous. And once you put that garment on, I'm not sure you could easily take it off. And once you become that high, I just think the pot shots are just there. There's no protection. There's no sanctuary. There's no way to say, you can't talk, you can't talk about me that way. Oh, yes, we can. You're a public performer. Go. So when John Stewart came to prominence his part in The Daily Show. There is a strange thing that happened, and part of what my quest here is to find out, is humor really making us better? One of the key ingredients of that is that at a certain point, The Daily Show became, at least amongst certain age group, the best revered form of news, not just humor, but right. news. And so it's not just like you when you're starting your classes as a professor where you start with a joke. The whole thing is done in a humorous way, but it's conveying real news. Right. It's not fake news. That's what's really important. It's not fake news. Their answers may be fake. The satire may be fake, but it's not fake news. And is it making the world better? Well, that's a great question. And thanks for calling. Goodbye. No, that's really, really a hard question, but I think I have an answer. When I was a professor of physics, if someone asked the difficult question, oh, I can see we're out of time, we'll have to answer that next. Yeah, or, or see, you're a professor of physics, all you have to say is two. No, 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 it's four. Yes. Any other questions? Um, I think a couple of things. Apparently about 27% of the viewing audience under 35 watches those shows. And right now we're still talking about The Daily Show. Trevor Noah has taken it over and carried it off. They watch that as the prime source of news. But according to Peter Sagal of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me fame, and nice enough to blurb my book, but uh, I think Peter has really got a handle on contemporary comedy since he's got the most popular comedy show on radio in America and perhaps the world. He said, kids get it. They can distinguish the joke from the fact and can joke about the fact, but then deal with the fact. And I think that's probably true. I think that the new technology has allowed people to understand media in an entirely different way. I'm <laughs> old enough to tell you that we had party lines. This was in Colorado. This is when I had this little home in Colorado. So it's, it's probably still the late 60s. So it's pretty late. But I remember as a child in the 50s, we had party lines. And if my mother, you can't swear on the phone. Well, in Colorado, because it was a the strange landline, they had to keep active with the operator. If you swore, they cut you off. <laughs> Imagine that, right? Really? Just, just beyond comprehension. And I think that comedy, it's changed in how they use the language, but they've made this a high art form, and I think people get it now. They understand it now. When I say to my students, 
every Monday I would say, Genie's Review of the Arts, and I would tell the films, because I'm coming up film buff, and I would tell them at least one film I saw that weekend. They don't go to films. They pirate it lately and watch it on the platform, but they don't go to films. Kind of amazing. You know, when it's out, when it's distributed, they somehow get it. They don't go to theaters. And, and boy, talk to the movie industry. They know that now, and they're really getting a little worried about that now. What does that mean? And I think they've absorbed the technology and understand it in a different way. This is a comic. You know, this is a clever fellow. John Stewart has changed the political landscape, but he hasn't done it through just fantasy. It's through being whimsical and intelligent about the facts. Yeah, there was always a sexual innuendo, so they talked about Trump's small hands, and notice he's got his hands covered. But they weren't doing the farce that was Shakespeare's time, the sexual farce that was part of Shakespeare's time. And the sexual innuendo in Shakespeare and his contemporaries is outrageous because that was writ large, and you could grab that. Very sophisticated stuff. And I think that we've changed satire. We've made it even more difficult to be Jackie Kennedy now. If you're going to be out there, you're forever there. And I think Mrs. Clinton has suggested that recently in these many interviews in her book. And some of the things she said I'm totally sympathetic for, and other things I say I wonder why, why you're even talking about this. But she said, um, you know, just because you're up there, I think people have not forgiven me for things that have happened eight to ten years ago. They haven't forgiven me for this or that. She said, forget that I make a mistake with my cell phone, yes, and so on and so forth. She says, but they could find anything. You could do anything now. You could, there's no place to hide. It's all there. Part of my question about the use of humor and if it's doing good for the world or not has to do with cynicism. I grew up, I be turned 18 in yeah. 1972. There's an idealism of the 60s that was very important. And I think that later generations grew up with a much larger portion of cynicism. And humor sometimes easily feeds cynicism. Oh, it does. And I think that this group of satirists, and they are satirists, and they are, in some sense, court jesters. They are klaxon callers of, of the society. They're town criers. They've raised the bar. They're much more intense. They are more cynical. But they will tell you in a serious conversation, I am cynical in order to get to the serious part. That is, the comics of Red Fox, it was total scatology and total sexuality. You were just shocked. He talked dirty from the get-go, and when it was not acceptable to do that. That was shocking. I think people now see the cynicism. I frankly look at it and say, my God, that was clever. That was really logical. Boy, they carried that premise over. Ooh, what a nice connection here or there. And then I don't lose the message along the way. And I think the contemporary comic is permitted to be more vicious, more clever, but there's always a danger of going too far. Let me go back to a real model of this book. One of the real beliefs of this book is Joan Rivers' concept. If you could laugh at it, you could live with it, right? I'm convinced of that. Because I know you're going to ask me, well, Al, do you have a cheery disposition? And my answer is no. And I'm being to be very serious for a minute. I see a life as a travail, as really difficult, full of injustice, full of harshness. Yes, there's joy, but not enough. Yes, there can be great humanity, but not enough. I see life as a difficult mystery that I have never been able to unpack and I've been trying to study it for a long time. And yet, I can laugh at it on occasion and therefore I can live with it. I need humor the way Lincoln needed humor, just the way an old laborer needs a couple drinks at night to turn it around. I need that to laugh and put it in perspective. But Joan Rivers... If you saw Joan Rivers in any of her specials the last 10 years, it was just salacious, just shocking, so dirty, so outrageous. When I remember her as a young woman, her dirty jokes when she was a young comic was, 
you know, my mother, I always listen to my mother. My mother said when I got married, the only thing she told me about sex is that men are on top and women are on the bottom. So for five years, my husband and I slept in a bunk bed. Bump it a bump. It's not even a sexual joke, is it, anymore? Right. And she got just permission to do that. And I think that's what's happened to comedy. It's gotten more, it's not paying the face. Listen, another drawback would be you grew up loving the Three Stooges, didn't you? When I was pretty young, yeah. I, I lost my taste along the way. Well, I lost my taste in them, too. It was too violent. We loved Laurel and Hardy. I loved Laurel and Hardy because that violence was a little more subdued, but it was pretty violent, right? But it was the physicality of it all. And I think we've changed our tastes in comedy a great deal, and we've given comics more and more permission to do almost anything. Now, that's a problem in and of itself, and that's a separate problem. But what comics do basically, whether you're the dirtiest comic on the block and the foulest on the block, even if you're Don Rickles at his height when he made vicious fun of everyone, right? People have paid money to be belittled by Don Rickles. Think about that. He always said, you know, this is an act. This is a performance. I'm trying to make you laugh. I'm supposed to be funny. I think comics could go too far. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certainly some percentage of the population who will find nothing funny. They just uh, lack the humor gene or whatever it is. But most people, you'll find most things funny. They'll, it'll work that way. One of my favorite one-liner jokes that is great, uh, did you hear about the dyslexic devil worshiper who screwed up and sold his soul to Santa? <laughs> That's a huge joke in the Quaker population. Isn't it's it? a, it's Quaker really big. Around America are gasping for breath. Yes. <laughs> I mentioned this to one woman I was interviewing about a book she had written. I just happened to mention this somehow in the context. And she said, I don't think that's funny because my partner is dyslexic. I'm not sure what that's got. I didn't put down dyslexics, I don't think. I Devil worshippers, I put down Santa. Who was I putting down? Uh, but I'm slightly dyslexic, so as soon as I said that, well, okay, then you can say it, of course. <laughs> right, you got to have permission. But here's the only group you could be careful of is rednecks. That gentleman who tells all these redneck jokes, you know, he's a multi-million, he's worth $150 million. Why? Because no one says I'm really a redneck, and they think you're talking about somebody else, you know? <laughs> Your father walks to school every day because he's in the same class. You're a redneck. If you go to family picnics to pick up a girl, you're a redneck, right? <laughs> but no one says I'm a redneck. It's kind of interesting. Now, you can tell Nazi stories, too, right? All the time. You can tell Nazi stories, I think, because no one says, I'm a Nazi. I'm really offended by that, right? And, in fact, one of the most absurd jokes I've heard in a long time, a kind of blending of ethnic joke and Nazi joke is uh, Hitler's concerned about when he's going to die, so he hires an astrologist. And an astrologist reads all the signs and so on and so forth, and he comes back to Hitler and he says, well, my Fuhrer, you're going to die on a major Jewish holiday. And Hitler kind of smirks at that and laughs at that and says, that's quite ironic, I'm going to die on a major Jewish holiday. I kind of like that. What holiday is it? And he says, oh, my Fuhrer, any day you die will be a major Jewish holiday. You know, you can do that because they're Nazis. Who's going to do that? But you've got to be careful in jokes. There's no safe, sacred place when it comes to jokes. But I am convinced that we have to keep on joking. Otherwise, we'll diminish ourselves and others. And you're going to find a lot of those jokes along with the deep philosophy behind humor in the importance of being funny, why we need more jokes in our lives by Al Genie. 
One more thing I want to bring us back to, and you've said this in various ways. I was actually looking in the book as I was reading it, Al, for the place where you would quote Robert Heinlein. Now, one of my formative thoughts about why humor is important came from Stranger in a Strange Land. Did you happen to read that book along the way? Oh, many times, many times. Okay, so maybe you recall the part where Michael Valentine Smith, this human who was raised by Martian on Mars, thinks like a Martian, doesn't understand human stuff. He doesn't know how to laugh, belly laugh. He can chuckle at things, right? He's in the zoo. He's watching the monkeys. His other friends wander away. He sees something. He falls on the floor laughing, can't stop for 10, 15 minutes. They ask what it is. He explains what it is. And they say, that's not funny. But what he saw was bananas thrown in or something. A little monkey grabs it, gets ready to eat it. A middle-sized monkey grabs it from him, beats him up, and starts to eat the banana. And then a bigger monkey beats him up and takes the banana away. And that's the big humor. Do you buy into that philosophy? Does that make sense to you? Is that part of what you're talking about, the importance of being well, funny? one of the theories, if we really want to get philosophical, let's not. One of the theories is superiority theory in regard to humor. And that could apply also to pie-in-the-face slapstick stuff. You consider this is a slapstick joke in some sense because there's violence in it, right? So we like the superiority theory. That is a put-down. Essentially, is you're putting people down and, and the might makes rights and so on and so forth. And that's kind of funny because it's mirroring reality. Yeah, I think that's part of humor, unfortunately. It is unfortunate. I mean, it can be very gentle. For example, um, a Texan bumps into a, a Harvard professor. He says, hi, y'all. How are, where are you from? And the Harvard professor says, I'm from a place that does not end the sentence of the preposition. So the text says, okay, where are you all from, jerk? <laughs> Boom, right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a superiority theory there. Yeah, I think humor can be very, very dark and very, very singular. Or a joke that only works for one person or, or somebody's changed that. But remember, part of the structure of a joke is you've got to have common cultural links. That's why jokes aren't translatable. Let me tell you this joke from my son. Besides the language, you're not going to get it because their metaphors are different, right? Mm -hmm. sure. There are universal jokes. That's why sex jokes are so, and that's why family jokes are so. There are universal concepts. But jokes are culturally inculcated into a situation, just like your little German joke. That was a play on ethnicity, but everybody got it. One of my favorite ethnic jokes is when I learned as a child, my Uncle Joe said to me, just had a, ate at a German-Chinese restaurant last night. Problem was, about two hours later, I was hungry for power. You know, Chinese food <laughs> doesn't fill you up. And yes, Germans, you know? yeah, yeah. And, you know, they get corny, but I think jokes fall into certain patterns, but it's about the commonality of our cultural and intellectual experiences that make jokes funny. Mm -hmm. There was a joke that was passed on to me. I was raised Catholic, by the way. And oh, I'm so sorry. You sound so normal. You're a Quaker now. You've survived. Well, I had a good experience of growing up Catholic. It wasn't the me theology too. that I could settle with, but one of my college roommates along the way, he mentioned something that on Easter, his mom had gone to the small town where he lives. He went to Catholic church you know, on Easter, and the priest, as part of his sermon, told this joke. And I was trying to imagine if there was anyone who thought it was funny in the congregation. It says, well, you know, why doesn't Jesus eat M&Ms? Because they keep falling through the holes in his hands. Oh, see, I'm telling you, I have flashing red lights in the back of my head right now. Absolutely. I would never tell that joke. 
No, it's somewhat distasteful. It's like telling a sex joke to your mother. You don't do it. The funniest sex joke you may know. That's not true. The funniest sex joke I know, I could tell my mother. But most sex jokes, you could never tell your mother, or you, know, or you wouldn't tell your wife. Perhaps a little embarrassed by that, okay? Now, a quick story. My wonderful grandson, whom I adore and worship, wants to be a stand-up comic. Because mm, Grandpa, I want to be like Grandpa. Grandpa tells jokes. So my next book is going to be the virtue of going to medical school. So maybe he'll read that one and have a different change, you know, change of mind. <laughs> that was my best line here. Are you still there? Hello. I'm still here. Can you hear ah, me? I'm sorry. <laughs> Just, I'm teasing. We go back and forth telling jokes. So I tell him jokes like, what did the grape say when the rhinoceros stepped on him? He didn't say anything. He just gave a little wine. That's right. Bingo. I read the book. I read the book. Okay, you're a good good 12-year-old. Thank you very much. And then my grandson tells me an oral sex joke. (laughs) Whoa, I said, you can't tell Grandpa that. But my friends think it's funny. He says, you're right. I bet you know 10 others. But not to me. Not here. Not now. I'll tell you why that's funny, but you can't use that. And I'm not mad at you. He looked at me. You're mad at me? No. You tell my mom? Absolutely not. But let's talk about it. And I think, you know, humor is placed. Humor is placed. Are you going to ask me, by the way, what my favorite sex joke is? So what is your favorite sex joke? And maybe the one you can tell your mom. All right. This one I can tell my mom. This is the one. So, again, the Jewish background. So in Skokie, uh, Chicago, uh, the suburb of Chicago, there's a Jewish retirement home. And Matt is turning 95 years old. So all the guys pitch in some money, and they hire a hooker. And they send a hooker up to Matt's room, okay? So the hooker goes up to Matt's room, knocks on the door. Wait, he says, I'm coming, I'm coming. He says, slow down, I'm old, I'm coming, I'm coming. Gets to the door, opens it up. This beautiful woman is on the other side of the door. She says, hi, happy birthday. Your friends have paid for me, and I'm here to offer you super sex. He says, what? Your friends, they set me up. I'm here to offer you super sex. He looks at her, and he says, well, honey, to tell you the truth at my age, I'll take the soup. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bada boom. <laughs> boom. You know, you can make fun of things. It's like your mother said, you can still have fun. <laughs> Not be naughty. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Well, folks, we've been speaking with Al Genie. The book is The Importance of Being Funny, Why We Need More Jokes in Our Lives. You can find it, of course, everywhere, but you could also find it via his website, algenie.net. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. If you need something, you maybe want to go to Quinlan School of Business there at Loyola University in Chicago. He was resident philosopher on WBEZ for so many years right in the Chicago area. He's got a wealth of wisdom, and he's got arm's length worth of books. It's not only humor he can talk about. There's so much. Al, thanks for bringing your wisdom here and your humor and for a lot of good jokes in the book. I'm treasuring it. Thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. You've been very kind. Remember, look up The Importance of Being Funny by Al Genie, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice